All right, welcome back to the podcast. I have uh, made a maze dag on here from um, Salty Lady Seafood in Juneau. Thanks for being on here. No problem. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on here for a couple of reasons. One, I'm I'm recently trying to get back into oysters. I loved them, and I had a bad experience. I went to work out, and then I went to a seafood kind of buffet type thing, and local people here in Ketchikan were providing oysters and all kinds of stuff, and I had too many oysters, and it turned my stomach, and dang it, if I can't get back to really loving them again, that's it's really a sad story about oysters, because I do love them. Yeah, they are difficult to forget if you have a bad experience. <laughs> that That is true. <laughs> very true. <laughs> have you, have you always liked oysters? Uh, you know, I didn't grow up eating a ton of oysters. And as I've gotten older, I've really grown to appreciate them. And especially since moving to Alaska, I really, really love Alaskan oysters in particular and their flavor profile and, um, sweetness is, is something that definitely stands out to me as, is unique and more palatable than some of the other oysters that I've had in my life. Yeah. I worked at a pizza place when I was growing up. And so I hated the smell of pizza and I resented pizzas and I couldn't eat pizzas for a while. I know you don't exactly, um, something would probably go pretty wrong if you were smelling oysters, but working with them all the time, has it, has it changed or uh, tempered your appreciation of them at all? Um, it does. I have a weird, um, actually not just me. I noticed my employees, we all get so excited every time we pull out a stack of oysters that's been sitting for a few months and we look at them every time we are all just like rifling through finding our favorite finding the prettiest ones and everybody's frantically digging and and we just we see them as so beautiful and each one is so unique and we remember them and we we're like we're just super excited by them and it's kind of weird and I it's dirty. It's messy. It, it is smelly out on the water just because there's, um, so much biodiversity and it's all different stages of life. And as stuff dies, it, it smells, um, not our oysters in particular, but you know, there's a lot of, uh, dead stuff on the water with the fouling and anyhow, it's a dirty process, but we yet find it to be so beautiful and, <laughs> and pleasurable in its own weird way. Yeah. So how long have you uh, had this oyster farm. And then what did you do before this? Um, so I had been a photographer for nine years. I started my business in Oregon and then my husband and I, um, moved to Juneau actually nine years ago. And in 2018, I was kind of interested in, in doing something different and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was pretty burnt out on sitting at a computer while living in one of the most beautiful places on earth and spending my summers staring at a screen, processing images um, from doing photo shoots and stuff. And so I, at that point was really hoping to figure out something that was more outdoors that I could involve my kids in and that could grow something that we could scale with our children as they grew. And, um, my husband threw, uh, doing a sea farm out there. Like he, you know, he threw out the word mariculture and I, at that point had no idea what it was. Um, and I asked and he said, it's like growing stuff in the ocean. And I thought, well, yeah, that's perfect. I, I had no previous history. I had no ideas. I just 
I just knew that there had to be something out there that involved less computer time and more hands-on technical skill sets that my kids could actually stuff that they, that could shape their experience in Alaska growing up here. So um, that was all just a thought and idea in, in February or March of 2018. And I just ran with it. And by the end of April, I signed documents for a lease here in town that a man had had since 2003. And he transferred that lease over to me. Um, and I started my farm. We set seed in August and now here we are. That's, it's a pretty short turnaround from photographer to, uh, <laughs> yeah, it really is. I think my husband at that point was thinking like, Oh, you know, maybe this is something we could consider in the future <laughs> as our kids get older. And he said it. And I just thought that's perfect. That's it. That's what I want to do. I want to grow stuff on the water in Alaska. I want my kids on boats. I want them outside in all elements, learning to tie knots and build things and work with their hands and learn how to get dirty and be a team and, you know, do something impactful. So I did, I mean, it was like a, gosh, a month and I had a lease and by, yeah, to have seed by August. I mean, that is very fast. I think my daughter at that point was two, two and a half. I still had a baby on my hip when I was building all this and <laughs> <laughs> keeping a life jacket on her to keep her afloat. And the boys uh, helped me set my first set of seed. Uh, and at that point they were really young and I just threw life jackets on them and gave them some scoops and they've just been working ever since. Huh. It seems like the type of thing that maybe anyone can do, but not everyone can do. So how did you make that leap or what were some of the learning things during that quick process that uh, you had to figure out and, um, I'm sure it wasn't all just, sure, we just did that and years later, here we are. So what was, how was that growth like when you were learning the, the system? So it, it definitely was not just a simple walk in the park. I, I started, first of all, I, I knew that this was a suitable lease and it was the only lease in all of Juneau. It was the only farm that had ever been permitted here. And and it was on the road system. I could access it really easily and quickly. So I started with my site and then I looked at what are the products I could grow here. And I just did some homework and some research based on the size of the site, the location and our current market in Juno. And I realized I don't have a big enough site to grow enough mussels. I don't have a big enough site to grow kelp, but I can grow oysters and I know that Juno would love them. And so that guided the species that I grew. And then from there, I just started reaching out to other farmers in the state and they were all just an open book and a wealth of information and knowledge. And I went and toured farms and facilities and just met people. I just got on a plane. Any invitation I got, I, I took, I said yes to. And as I built this out, um, I was able to look at some other farm sites and, and, get kind of ideas. And really a lot of the, a lot of the decisions I made were shaped by available resources. Um, they were shaped by, you know, the size of my parcel, the depth of my water, the flow. Um, and then also by the people that were willing to help me. Anytime somebody offered me a piece of advice or a, a help, like help in any way, I just tried to allow myself to pivot and, hear people's ideas. And if they'd say, this is the gear and equipment we got, because it's the only gear that you can really get up in Alaska. Then I, you know, I tried to like not reinvent the wheel here. Um, mm -hmm. And 
I just found that people were really eager to help and support a mom dragging her kids around to set, you know, thousands and thousands of pounds and acres. Cause clearly like, I'm not like, I don't have, I'm a photographer. I don't have the skill set to do all of this construction and development, but there's a lot of people that do. And if you are a kind, well-meaning person in this community, people are, are excited and want to help. So I just, have really depended a lot on our community to rally and help me learn what I'm doing as I go and figure out what resources are available and use those to put this together. And it's worked out great so far. So would you say that your most needed or most valuable attribute was your willingness to, uh, to listen or to learn? Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't ever pass up a single lead. If I got a lead from somebody even in the beginning, I didn't know where I was going to find 10,000 pounds of anchors, you know, like, I don't, I have no idea, like Western auto doesn't carry that. And so I just made it a point to like pack my kids up after school, load them up and then go to the um, Harbor and literally walk around and meet people and ask like, Hey, do you guys know where I can find some massive anchors? And then if they'd say, go check on uh, that boat over there, he might know somebody I'd go to that boat. I just, did what you know people gave a recommendation I followed it and it really seemed to pan out because I always got set in the right direction and one thing always led to another and good things happen and when things started to fall apart or not work out then I just switch gears and carry on and don't let it you know get me down it's really a matter of just staying positive and optimistic and it seems to work out mm-hmm. I read a Juno Empire article from January of 2021 and you were interviewed and you talked about how pretty much as soon as you really started getting rolling or got rolling was when the pandemic hit. And so you had to switch and, and change things a little bit. And like you said, remain positive. So can you talk a little bit about how you just kind of get things figured out and then all of a sudden you have to pivot because the pandemic's going on? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think in my mind, I was going to have like this really small farm and it really is one of the smallest farms in the state. And yet we are producing a good chunk of the volume of um, oyster sales for our state right now. And, um, and I had this idea when I got started that I would just sell to a few, like as in three wholesale buyers and keep things really simple. Like I'll do one restaurant, a grocery store and a seafood um, distributor. Right. And then that's like three buyers. And if I move all my product through them, it'll really simplify things. Well, when COVID shut things down, it definitely caused us to have to reconsider how we were going to move our product and connect with our market. And so at that point, we decided with no restaurants and with limited access to um, resources and stuff that we would just try to connect directly with our consumers like our retail buyers so just individuals so we shaped our website so that we could um take orders online through our website and then we partnered with different businesses in town who were needing to you know they couldn't have patronage inside but what they could do is continue to sell their product um as more of a a take not takeout but that's the word I'm looking for. I mean, guest takeout where you just go and buy it and take it home and, and drink it or eat it or whatever. So um, they were looking for more people coming in. And so we we made some great partnerships at that time with some local businesses um, in different areas of the community so that it was convenient for folks living in different areas. And then they essentially just distributed our product for us. So we would harvest, 
sell online and then have our product available for pickup at these locations so that um, folks could connect with us directly and get the freshest possible product. And it seems to have worked out. I think people really enjoy feeling that sense of connection with us directly rather than just going to the supermarket or, um, you know, the, the seafood distributor or something. Sometimes I think there's a nice uh, level of intimacy when you're talking with your customers and, mm-hmm. and they're seeing you. Did you find that uh, because it was a pandemic that the customers were willing to help out businesses? Um, I know that was definitely a, a cool feeling we had in Ketchikan was that a lot of people wanted to help out the, these business owners who were you know, losing so much revenue because people either not being able to go out to eat or wouldn't have tourists. So it was kind of a rallying point. Did you uh, get that same experience in general? I'm sure you did. Absolutely. Absolutely. I felt like there was a lot of people who recognized how hard what we were doing was and they wanted to see us succeed. And so for that alone, they were like, we are going to order your product. We want to support you. We want to see you succeed. And we're so grateful that you're here. And so, yeah, um, I think that's been a huge part of our success is having a community driven mindset that wants to lift each other up and see each other succeed because it's best for the whole community when that happens. Mm-hmm. What about entrepreneurs in general? Um, are there resources? Is there a support group that makes it sound like it's therapy or something like that? But do, do you kind of talk and, and share other ideas with other people who might even be in different markets about um, how to market, how to reach customers and best practices, things like that? I definitely feel like I'm a part of a entrepreneurial community. Um And it seems like there is a lot of collaboration when it comes to not just Mariculture, but small businesses and trying to figure out um, sometimes how to navigate some of the bureaucracy or um, marketing and technology side of things. Um, Yeah, so I I do. I have I have a husband. I think I mentioned (laughs) in the beginning because he was the big inspiration behind this. He was the guy with the idea Um, and he actually is a lot a lot more heavily involved with more of the economic develop, like the community economic development side of things. Um, and he's been a part of Southeast Conference and um, Juno Economic Development Council. And so he tends to be more of the behind the scenes um, guy who does a lot of the um, website development stuff for me and a lot more of my technical computer work. And so he is actually a phenomenal resource too. And he's always out helping um, different organizations and groups. Mm-hmm. Part of the whole thing is to have a good product, but also how to market that. So have there been some things where you were, you kind of struggled with either the, the message or you had to figure out a different way to, to pivot and really get the, get the, get marketing and, and reaching more eyes, uh, maybe outside of Juno or how's your, how's your marketing evolved over the last couple of years? You know I have to be honest, I am like, I really tried to move away from my computer because I am not somebody who has a real strong propensity for being tech savvy. savvy. And, um, and so there's little things that I still don't understand. Like I posted something on Facebook and Instagram yesterday and it got seen by two people. Out <laughs> in this, Like none of my audience, none of my followers, I couldn't tell you why Instagram only showed it to two people. Uh, So I don't really know. Like I definitely just try to share what we're doing and I know people love and support us and um, we have some different community pages. And so I sell a lot of our product through Facebook. Um, 
but I am by no means good at it. I don't want to even want to pretend like I am. I, I try to just build relationships with people. And I think the people that we have relationships with, um, in our community that, that love us and support us seem to just do a great job of advocating for our business and sharing their love and enthusiasm about what we're doing. And that's been a huge part of this is the, the component of like actually just building relationships that are strong and genuine enough that people are eager to do that, like not advocating, but um, you know, like sell our product for us because they're so excited about it. So that's been a huge part of how our business has grown. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's like an Alaska thing or if it's an overall thing, but that word of mouth, it seems in so many areas that that was the old way of doing marketing. And if you didn't have online presence, if you didn't have some sort of influence on, on social media and take advantage of the free mar- free marketing on those platforms that you were destined for failure. But it seems like the model of, Hey, just put out a good product and people will connect you to more customers. Cause they're going to talk about it. I think sometimes that that might be still like, underestimated somehow, which is, which doesn't make any sense. It seems like it should be marketing 101. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I definitely, I, I think in a, in a community like Juno or Ketchikan, I think a huge part of building a successful business is building successful relationships with the people in your community more than any marketing strategy that reaches out to the lower 48 or does anything else. I think it's all about um, connections and story, like sharing your story and having people understand who you are, what you're about and what you're doing. I think that it just, I, I think that's probably unique to Alaska and not common everywhere else. Mm-hmm. How far has the business reached? Are you filling orders from lower 48? Are you getting out of uh, Southeast or is, is Southeast um, as providing you, providing you as much customer interaction as, as you need we have been super fortunate in that um somehow well i can tell you how we've built some amazing relationships with people in juno who love and support us and then those people advocate or share our story and then that seems to just spread and so we've had some cool opportunities um we had a chef a famous youtube chef come out to our farm and he filmed a video and did a farm tour and did this amazing preparation of, um, oysters with, um, some really yummy sauces that he handmade. And he actually prepped it all on the dock and fed it to our crew and helped harvest and wash. And in that time I had been talking about a bear that, um, was out in the cove that was currently on the Island that our farm is at. And and the bear all of a sudden popped out and started swimming and we got footage of that. And then his YouTube video, you know, he's got videos that are reached by like a million people. And so of course, then he shared this video and then that really did um, open up a lot of a larger, broader audience for us. And it's not because of any special tech savviness on my part. It's just having the right relationships with the right people and um, having a great product. And so we started at that point selling to individuals in the lower 48. And then we have a sidecar in New Orleans, Louisiana, and they sell our product at their oyster bar there. And there's a flying fish in Portland and they sell our oyster. We sell our oysters there. They do. Um, they're both oyster bars, um, and restaurants. And so plus we have Southeast, of course. Can you hear the kids? Yeah, that's fine. I like the, authentic, 
it's uh, it's not <laughs> the authentic uh, into this yeah yeah, there's neighborhood kids and dogs and all that happening downstairs. So that's okay. Yeah, that's perfect. We don't have to pretend that it doesn't exist. Like that's fine. Yeah. I'm actually here in my classroom at school. So, you know, it's it's no big deal. Awesome. Um, this seems like the perfect time to talk about recipes. And if you're talking about a chef, so what is your favorite way to have them? And maybe that will help my body readjust and, and re-prepare that appetite. Yeah, so we have, of course, an amazing boutique oyster that is a petite. It's perfect for um, just eating raw, which is always delicious and amazing. And we like it with the barnacle bullwhip hot sauce and lemon. I had that um, last week for the first time. And that that might be the clincher. I had half an oyster with my wife and it was that because that stuff's out of somewhere in Southeast, right? What's, where's that at? Juno, of? yeah. Barnacles yeah. here in Juno. They're another company. And actually they're the ones who referred that outdoor chef life to us. Oh, perfect. Um, and so, yeah, we had some of their hot sauce and oysters. So yeah, they're here and we sell their hot sauce through our website and we, it's a, it's a great pairing. It's got the kelp in it and it's a full body flavor and it, it just is really nice with the oysters. So um, we love that. And then I do love some yummy oysters. Rockefeller is so good where you take, yeah, you take butter softened and you mix it um, with Parmesan and breadcrumbs and maybe a little hot sauce and greens, whatever different greens you want. And, and then you spoon it into the oysters. You're going to shuck your oysters, cut the mussels so that it slides right off when you eat it. And then you broil it for three to five minutes till it's bubbly and delicious. And that is really yummy. If you ask me, mm -hmm. do you think like frying them is, is kind of cheating? If you batter it up and you, and you cook the heck out of it, do you think that's a cheap uh, way to have oysters or is that fine? I, any way you want to eat oysters is I'm not going to say no. Like that's a, that's a good I, diplomatic answer. Yes. Like I, I do love, there's some really good Southern breading that you can um, batter the oysters in and fry them. And I think they're delicious. I, we do that. We do. I mean, really the options are endless and I don't think there's a wrong or a right way. Actually, I take it back. I think that you can cook the rat out of an oyster and ruin it. I do think that mm. it's, you don't want to destroy it or, you know, annihilate it and cause it to shrivel up into nothing. Um, but I, I also believe that you can fry it, you can steam it, you can eat it raw, broiled, grilled, so many good options. I'm getting hungry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that people who don't, aren't as, maybe don't have the access to the seafood that we do up here, they don't understand how diverse seafood is. I think in their mind, the only way you have oysters is on the half shell, nothing. You just shoot it. And when it comes to salmon, all you can do is cedar plank it and a little bit of lemon pepper and that's it. But it, seafood is so diverse. There's so many different things you can do with it that don't require a chef. It's just a little bit of sauce or a different way to cook it. And I think people would really enjoy seafood a lot more if they were kind of aware of how diverse it is. Right. Yes. I, I, I think limiting yourself and, and trying to be a purist and then coming up with this box and putting seafood into that box is probably not a way to really like market seafood to everybody. I'd say, I'd say opening up the options, <laughs> endless possibilities is a far better direction to head than limited possibilities. Cause there are people who struggle with shucking an oyster and 
you know, if you don't want to shuck an oyster, you can steam an oyster and it'll open. You can grill an oyster and it'll open. And I think like saying the only way to do it um, is this way is going to just, you know, create more barriers to good food. So Mm -hmm. I'd say be open to the possibilities. And, and I think you'll find that there's a lot of great ways and recipes out there. um, If you're just kind of open to trying new things. Yeah. How do they ship compared to maybe a seafood? You probably haven't shipped salmon or anything like that, but um, how do they ship? They, they do fine. I think, you know, we've, we've started really just using FedEx today. And so if I harvest oysters on a Tuesday, the oyster bar in Louisiana will be shucking them on Friday. And that's Mm. like super fresh. Right. So they, they've done great. We just pack them with gel ice and in an insulated, um, box and yeah, they, they are, they're doing great. And I know that there's other ways, like you can, Taylor shellfish has frozen product, frozen oysters that come with like a, a butter um, mixture that you can throw in there and grill them. And I, I think in Alaska, we're just starting to get um, the resources and infrastructure in place to be able to start doing stuff like that here and sending our product even farther. I mean, it would be great to reach a global market uh, for Alaskan farmers. So, um, but as of yet, it's, it's going really well for us. Like we've, we've done really well with shipping and everything's, you know, I haven't had to ship though during a really, really hot spell. I haven't had the uh, pleasure of getting to ship oysters to Arizona (laughs) in the summertime to find out like just how well I handled it. I think it should be okay. I think it should do great. So what is the life cycle of an oyster like? And what is a baby oyster name? Is it the, like, a, is it a larva? Cause they inhabit the shells of previous oysters, right? Which is why you have to keep those shells out. Is that? Yeah. Do I have yes. that right? Well, yeah. So in Alaska, Alaska is like a little unique because our water is cold enough that oysters don't naturally propagate where like in Washington, you'll have natural oyster sets, um, and naturally propagated oysters that are, you know, native to certain areas. And we don't have that here. So all of our oysters get propagated. Um, actually, I think just about all of them come from Hawaiian shellfish where they use, um, more of a lab type setting and they control the environment and increase the nutrients and the water temperature and the oysters release their, uh, gametes, you know, their, uh, procreation parts and they, um, propagate there. And then you end up with an eyed larvae and the eyed larvae then gets set on shale. And then, yeah, then the oyster uses that shell to grow itself. Um, and then from there, it gets sent out to nursery systems around Alaska. There's just a few, I think we've got three and they put them in a flupsy. It's a floating upweller system that creates this nice controlled environment where they can control the water flow and the nutrient flow. And the oysters are able to grow in kind of a, a nice protected setting where they're not dealing with constant fluctuations in current and stuff like that. So um, they stay in the flupsy for maybe six months and then they go out to the farms um, when they're about six, seven months old, um, depending on what size of oysters you want to seed on your farm. And so then, then that's when we get them. We prefer to definitely get the bigger oysters because um, we have higher viability and less time handling them. And then we are able to put a lot more effort into creating a quality oyster 
because we're handling, um, once we get it, we can handle it a lot because we don't have to have specialized equipment. So that's kind of the cycle. And then for us here, we try to uh, have it ready for market within three years. Um, however, some farms take four to five years, depending on how big of an oyster they want to have um, or they want to sell. So, um, and then I, I, think that oysters can live a really long time on their own. I've heard of 10 year old oysters. Oh, wow. um, so I guess don't quote me on that. I can make <laughs> myself sound like a real fool here. <laughs> I, think they, I don't know what they're natural, like when they would naturally just die. We usually would want to sell them before then. So I'm not exactly, that's a good question on when they, you know, what their life cycle would look like naturally without mm -hmm. humans eating them. What about the science that goes into the growing conditions that you have to maintain? Are you checking the pH of the water or because it's out in the ocean? Like, are there certain coves that are maybe better for um, growth than others? What are you looking for? Yes, we are. There's a lot of different environmental factors. And actually, the, the method you grow your oysters, the salinity of the water, the water temperature, the phytoplankton that they're eating, you know, any freshwater influence, all of that impacts an oyster's flavor, right? It, it changes the flavor of the oyster, including like the, the type of grout gear you use and the methods you use to handle your product. It changes the firmness of the meat. Um, it changes the hardness of the shell and the density of your product. And so um, different farms around the state will have different tasting oysters. And to some folks, it might just be a subtle difference, but to those who are really uh, acutely aware, uh, you know, have a, I guess, more refined palate, we could say, um, will totally notice the differences. And um, at a, you know, at your farm site, like it seems like our salinity where we're at varies a ton depending on what time of year and what type of storms we've had. But uh, we tend to have a broad range between seven and 25 parts per million for our salinity of our water. And then in the summertime, the temperature impacts how quickly the product grows. Um, and our water temps, uh, sometimes are almost 60, 58, 59 degrees. And that allows us to grow product pretty quickly and have it ready for market pretty, pretty fast. Um, and then if there's streams coming into farm sites that can give some freshwater influence, which can, uh, lower the salinity of the water. Um, it's all, yeah, it all kind of changes things. If you're growing in suspended gear, uh, that hangs where your oysters are sitting more sedentary or they're just hanging out. They're not really getting moved and jostled. You might have a more tender meat. Um, but if you have an oyster that is constantly flipped in a bag on the surface, you might have a firmer meat on your product um, because that oyster is constantly moved and handled and jostled. It's going to have a harder shell and be a bit more dense and and yeah, maybe a little bit more firm meat. So those things all kind of go into impacting um, the flavor and texture of an oyster. It sounds like an awesome thing to have during the summer when you're taking your skiff out to the site and you're working. But it seems like it would be absolutely awful this time of year. And I, I understand you had some, some damage because you had some big seas and a big tide. Yeah. Yeah. We, you know, there's always something. That's just how it is when you're in Alaska and you've got all of this like hydrodynamic environment and weather and storms and temperature changes. And yeah, we even, um, 
just having our boat at the dock out at Aldersheim Lodge where we we keep our skiff. It's um, there's a big breakwater there and we have the big mine boats there that run to Kensington Mine and it just had a random fluke storm that was supposed to just be a northerly and it turned into like a northwesterly and it mm-hmm. um, just caused this a lot of surf to come in to where we keep our boats and it's just the perfect combination of a minus four tide and the surf crashing and rolling backwards and it just kept rolling into the back of the boat until the boat was swamped and it was just a hot mess. And so we've put a lot of time and effort into rebuilding it um, for the last two months and uh, definitely was um, all hands on deck, literally all hands on deck on a deck that was glare ice in a storm at night in the middle of the night with, yeah, just everybody trying to, um, keep all the boats there they were lines were breaking and the buoys were popped and it was just a mess yeah nobody got hurt everybody survived so that's huge yep how often do you have to go out to the site uh we try to go out to the farm at least once every other week and ideally every week however when i lost my boat i felt like i needed to not (laughs) it's like a lot of work to go out without a boat it involves dry suits and paddle boards and hiking and carrying a lot of weight and so uh for the last two months all of our harvests have been by trail which means that we drive out the road we park we hike all the gear down to the beach and then we carry the kayaks and pump up the paddle boards and then we paddle across harvest pull all the bags up onto the paddle boards ferry them to the dock sort our product load it up onto the paddle boards, paddle it across, and then we use cash packs and pack it up on our backs up the trail. And it's 250 pounds of product. And then all of the paddle boards and gear and dry suits and dry bags and emergency equipment. And uh, it's a tremendous amount of work. So I definitely tried to just do that (laughs) less than once a week uh, because it's it's just exhausting. So um, a lot of love goes into getting our product to market this time of year. And I'm so grateful that I have a crew of amazing people that are just happy and willing and okay with working hard. And they're just down for a good adventure. And that seems to be the thing that drives a lot of my employees is having fun and being a part of a great team and getting to do something out of the ordinary in Alaska. That's maybe a bit extraordinary. I think they all kind of seem to enjoy that side of stuff. Mm -hmm. Do you have any seasonal workers that are like high school kids? I know there are some high school kids around here that get really cool jobs, like, you know, kayak guide, you know, and we have some people working at the oyster farms and you get these, these teenagers that, when you talk to people in the lower 48 about, wait, that's not a, that's not a first time job. Like what, well, where was this when I was in high school? Did you get the, you get some younger kids working on that? Or is it mostly kids who've already graduated twenties, thirties? Yeah. So the, we've had a great mix when we very first started, of course it was my kids and then their friends would just come help out because they are looking for something to do. So it's, you know, family friends. And then I had my, um, we have a big Juno family. And so my nieces, you know, spring break, me, my three kids and my three nieces all together. And mind you, my daughter at that point was three and a half, uh, and it's March in Alaska. And so me running out with six little kids all under middle school age, um, go into sword oysters, spring break and divide them into, you know, divide them and 
clean them. And um, that definitely was my crew for the first year or so as my kids and my family and my extended family. And then as we've grown and we've started selling, we have um, you know, income coming in. And so we've graduated on from the family crew of kids that have been working to um, having employees. And then during COVID that provided some unique opportunities because my kids homeschooled. So uh, the first year in 2020, the first winter of sales, um, my boys just went with me to harvest. And then we had this really great partnership with the university. And so we had university students that were doing research projects um, using the farm site to gather data and research and getting funding for that. So they were coming out with us and helping and, and collecting data and helping harvest. And then that also led to um, having another student. We had another family friend whose daughter homeschooled and she was able to get homeschool credits for Mariculture for helping out at the farm. And oh, that awesome. was a high school student. Mm-hmm. So, so she, she made that work. And since she was homeschooling, she could come with us in the winter um, during the school day and get credit for it, school credit, which is amazing. And so between the research um, and the school credits, that seems to be how we made it through the first couple years and having amazing supportive family. And now that we are actually like growing and selling product and increasing our volume, we have just an awesome group of young, you know, employees. And some of them are still in college. Some of them are out of college. Um, as of yet, they're all Alaskan from Juneau and um, just great, awesome crew. And then, yeah, the university, that partnership is, is continued on to, to lead to other great students who want to carry on that research project. And we've got funding through NOAA um, to keep that research going. So, yeah, this summer we'll have a good solid mix of my kids and um And then maybe some of the high school credit stuff, I'll have to talk, I don't know exactly how that's going to land yet, but then we'll have uh, some research students that come out once or twice a week. And then I'll have some um, employees that are just my standard employees that are there with me. So it's a good mix, a really good mix. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of kids that have those sort of jobs, it prepares them for the adult world so much because the, the connections you have and the hard work and you're feeling so much more. I know connected or, or purposeful in your work rather than just getting that stereotypical job bagging groceries or flipping burgers in the old days. Yeah. I think it just prepares these kids so much more. And, you know, people expect kids to be from Alaska and to be sheltered and to, you know, Oh, well, you were in Alaska, you know, you don't really know much about the real world, but a lot of these kids are very, very prepared. And I feel very confident that they're going to be successful when they leave because they've had those sort of real jobs growing up. Um, yeah, I do feel like that's one of the unique things of getting to grow up in Alaska is you have a lot more exposure to unique opportunities um, than you might in a suburban school down south, you know, and that's kind of what I'm hoping for for my kids is this kind of shapes, you know, the technical skills that they end up going out into the world with and providing them with something unique that um helps them somewhere along the way, whether it be to be hands-on or gritty or, or know what it means to do hard things and, and to still do them well. Right. And to know how to work really hard, but have that magical flow with your crew where everybody works together and knows how to work together. And there's just this just jive that happens. And I'm, I'm hoping that that's like part of what shapes 
um, what type of people my kids become. Mm -hmm. And for all the kids that come out and work on the farm, they all learn that same thing. And I think it's, I do think it's unique uh, to be in here. Yeah. Not something, I saw something I ever had when I was growing up. I grew up in Cloac. And so we had, I think, 65 kids in the high school when I was there. And my parents made a point to make sure we went back down to Colorado just so I could kind of see the world. So it wasn't, you know, Prince of Wales Island, Cloac High School of 65, graduating class of 14. Then all of a sudden, you know, big world university. Uh, do you travel outside just to kind of expose the kids a little bit or did you? Uh, yes. We do. And I think with my photography business, that actually was a good way for me to kind of transition um, away from our life in the lower 48. I still kept my client base. And so we went down south at least three to four times a year for the first oh, three to three years or so, three to four years. And then once we kind of decided to start maybe traveling other places instead instead of back home to see family, then we really ended up doing a lot more traveling with our, our kids um, to Central and South America so that they could mm-hmm. get to have some broader experiences to, you know, to provide them with more opportunities to see that there's so much more out there than what we have here. Yeah, it's pretty good here, but yeah, there's a lot to see. And if they want to come back, come back on their own terms, right? Right. Yeah. And I think it's important to have some perspective because you can kind of get stuck in your own little snail, like your own little shell of a life and think that this is what it is and this is what it's like. But there's something about that experience of seeing like there's different lives everywhere and not everybody does it like this. Right. And it's okay. It's totally okay. And there's, you know, I just think it's important, I guess, for them to realize that there's a thousand ways you can skin a cat i don't know if that's right that's right i don't know if there's a thousand different ways there's uh like one effective way and a couple other ways that'll make your palm bleed right right yeah the, the best way to shuck an oyster is by not stabbing yourself <laughs> yeah, exactly so where can uh where can people find you we talked uh there's some limited instagram but there is an instagram and then you have a website so uh where can people find you yeah, you can find us on, on Instagram and on Facebook, uh, Salty Lady Seafood. And we our website is saltyladyseafood.co. And if you want to buy oysters slash shop, I don't know if that actually translates <laughs> to something meaningful <laughs> the way I said that. But Google, Google and you'll find us. There Juno oysters or yeah, yeah, whatever you want to find. Great. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you being on here. Congratulations on the successful business. And uh, I look forward to continuing my rehabilitation back toward oysters. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. Hope you have a great day. You too. Take care. Bye.